Many of you will probably recognize the name C.S. Lewis. Uh, while we would not endorse all of his theology in this church, there is no doubt that he was one of the most brightest and influential Christians, certainly of the last few decades, maybe even centuries. He was a philosopher and an author before he became a Christian. And then when he converted, he brought those gifts into the Christian faith. He wrote prolific Christian stories and apologetic works. And one of his more memorable arguments was an argument that became known as Lewis's trilemma. Now, Lewis was certainly not the first person to ever make this argument or speak of Christ this way, but he certainly was the one who popularized it. And the trilemma states that there's really, the Bible only gives you three options as it pertains to how you think of Jesus. The claims that Jesus makes about himself in the Gospels are so lofty that there are some ways of thinking about him that are off the table. There's really only three ways a person could judge Jesus, and the trilemma has the three L's. You either must see him as a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. And Lewis had made this argument because he was just so tired of hearing his secular age try to claim Jesus as just this mere, just a good man, just a good moral teacher. Nothing more, not God, but he was just a good guy and a good teacher. We like Jesus. We don't worship him as Lord, but we like him. Good man, good moral teacher. And Lewis wanted to show people that option's not on the table. Because of the things Jesus says about himself, that option is not on the table. Jesus claimed to be the very Son of God who holds the whole world's salvation in his hands. If that isn't true, and Jesus knows it isn't true, then he's a liar. And liars don't make for good men or good teachers. If that isn't true, but Jesus thinks it's true, then he's a loony. He's gone mad. He's insane. And insane people don't make for good moral teachers. The only other option is that it's true. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Lord. But those are your only three options. And Lewis proposed this trilemma to help his secular age better think through, more responsibly think through, what are we to make of Jesus of Nazareth? Because this is the most important question a person can ask. And it's been the most important question a person can ask ever since Jesus was born in Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John very much is a record of the first century people of Israel trying to figure out what are we to make of Jesus of Nazareth? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is what he says he is? Is he the Lord. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 7, beginning in verse 14? We're going to read a longer passage than normal. We're going to read through verse 36, 14 through 36. John chapter 7, verse 14. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, thus saith the Lord. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he has sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So we learned two weeks ago that Jesus let his brothers go up to the feast, but he wanted to obey God and not go up to the feast prematurely. And so it appears that God had him wait just long enough for the heat to sort of cool down. Everyone at the beginning of the feast was, where's this Jesus guy? Let's get him. The heat has kind of cooled down. And so Jesus finally makes his presence at the feast known by preaching in the temple during congregational worship. And the congregation is astonished at his doctrine and how he knows this doctrine. Now, we don't know all that Jesus taught these people on this particular Sabbath day worship, but we do know elements of it from what we just read, and I think we can boil down his primary message, which is that he is the Christ, which makes him the Lord. Because remember, the term Christ, the messianic term for Christ, is a kingly role. So he's claiming to be the Lord, the long-awaited Lord of the nations. And this leaves people divided over what to make of this grandiose claim. What are the Jews supposed to think about this Jesus who claims to be the Lord? Well, the first thing I want us to look at is that Jesus gives them good reason to believe his claims. Jesus does, in fact, argue for his claim that he is the Lord so that they don't need to assume that these are the ravings of a lunatic or the lies of a deceiver. In fact, I think that he argues in this text, in his sermon really, three primary arguments as to why they should accept his claim that he is the Lord. So the first part of our sermon today, I want us to see those arguments. I want us to see his three primary arguments. What does Jesus appeal to 
to vindicate his claim that he is in fact the Christ. Well, the first thing Jesus appeals to is his wisdom. Jesus appeals to his wisdom. He appeals to his own wisdom. Read verses 14 through 16 with me. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So Jesus possessed an obvious unnatural wisdom, an unnatural knowledge, meaning he had a theological brilliance that doesn't make sense. There's no reason why an untrained carpenter from the middle of nowhere rural Galilee should have this kind of deep, sophisticated, doctrinal knowledge. Jesus is outperforming the trained, scholarly Jewish rabbi in the temples. Where did he acquire this kind of knowledge? This is astonishing to these people. This is an unnatural ability to know these things. And I want to argue that this text probably, we even go through this a little quicker than we should. We live in a day and age where I don't think we realize just how amazing this is. Because you see, in our day and age today, it's a little less, it's still remarkable, but it's a little less remarkable when someone who doesn't have any formal training sort of outperforms someone who does have formal training. That's actually not that unheard of today, but that's because our, our day and age makes that a little misleading. Because while they might not have formal training, we live in a day and age where they have resources to still have exquisite training. Right? I mean, there are brilliant theologians all across our country today, all across the world today, that have never gone to seminary. But that doesn't mean they're unlearned. They just had the resources to learn outside of seminary because of all of the things that we have today, right? So thanks to online resources, books, libraries, etc., etc., we have access to information that the world never thought possible. I mean, it's just amazing the, the quick, easy, affordable access we have to sophisticated information on almost any topic, this isn't in my notes, but I just have to share this funny story. One time my dad and I went to Chipotle a long time ago, and my dad ran into a really old friend, someone we used to be really good friends with, and they kind of fell out of touch. And So they were just kind of catching up about each other, and he said, so what have you been up to? And he said, well, I just recently built an engine and put it in my car. My dad said, that's amazing. As long as I've known you, you've never been much of a mechanic. You've never really been into cars. I, I didn't know you knew how to do this. He goes, I don't, but you can learn anything on YouTube. This guy built an engine on YouTube. Right? We, we have access to that kind of information. But we have to remember, as obvious as it might be, they didn't have this in the first century. Amazon wasn't shipping books to Jesus' doorstep in two days. Jesus wasn't going to libraries and renting and checking out books. Jesus wasn't accessing public domain literature through university libraries online. Jesus had, as a matter of fact, it's unlikely Jesus even had a Bible in his house. The only access you had to sophisticated training, the only access would to be trained under the rabbis. And Jesus didn't have that. He lived in Galilee and his dad was a carpenter. He had no ability to learn or train these things and yet he comes into the temple and he's the greatest theologian in the world. How is this possible? 
And by the way, in case you want to come up with some natural explanation, what you'll be hard-pressed is to know that this isn't the first time this happens. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, tells us that as, at 12 years old, Jesus was in the temple astonishing the rabbis at how much theology knew and the deep questions he was asking. As a 12-year-old, he was putting them to shame. How is this possible? The only explanation that anyone could give is the one that he gave. Was that he's the divine son of God. So his knowledge doesn't come from textbooks. It doesn't come from rabbis. It doesn't come from study. It comes directly from his relationship to God. His doctrine is not his. But it comes from him who sent him. It's the father's. It's a divine wisdom that he has received. Because he shares the father's mind. He shares the Father's essence, which is the very claim he makes later on in verse 29 when he cranks up the heat on his sermon a little bit. Look at verse 29. Speaking of the Father, he says this, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This is a remarkable verse in your Bible. Here, Jesus is teaching us a doctrine that I hope you're getting sick of by now because it's been popular in the Gospel of John, so we've talked about it a lot. He's referencing the doctrine of eternal generation, that Jesus generates from the Father, that he comes from God. We confess this in the Nicene Creed today, by the way. Right? We confess together that, he, that the Son is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, the same essence as the Father. John seven twenty nine. I am from God. I am the God from the God. This is why he shares God's divine nature, because he comes from him. That's why, by the way, we call him the Son. Why do we call Jesus the Son of God? Because he comes from God and therefore receives the, God, the Father's essence. So he has the Father's essence now, which means he has the Father's will and he has the Father's mind. What the Father knows, the Son knows. That's why his theology is so good, because he's from God. And we know that that's what he's teaching here, by the way. Because the text separates being from God and being sent. He says in verse 29, I am from him and I'm sent from him. So unless you want to say he just repeated himself, he's actually talking about two different things. Because I eternally generate from God, that's why I am the one he sent. This answers the question, by the way, have you ever asked the question in the Trinity, why did the Son become incarnate? Why didn't the Father become incarnate? Why didn't the Holy Spirit become incarnate? The Son became incarnate because it was fitting with the divine nature that He had. Because He is the one who comes from the Father. So it's really as simple as this. Sons don't send fathers. Fathers send sons. The second person needed to be the incarnate one because He is the one already from God. It makes sense that He would be sent because He's already from He's the Father's Son, and fathers send sons. So Jesus is saying, how is my theology so good? Because I am from God and have been sent by Him. Therefore, I have His mind. I know His doctrine. Jesus has an unnatural, a supernatural understanding of theology because He is supernatural. He is the Son of God, and that makes Him the Lord. And His profound, inexplicable knowledge proves that. And that's why they're so amazed at the beginning of the chapter. 
How on earth did this man who's never studied know so much? That's because he is from God and he is sent from God. Jesus appeals to his wisdom. But he also proves his lordship, not just by appealing to his impeccable wisdom, but his impeccable life as well. Jesus, in other words, simply lived a righteous life that is not consistent with the life of a liar or the life of a lunatic. So Jesus appeals to his wisdom. He also appeals to his ethics. Look at verses 17 through 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. In other words, as it pertains to Jesus, the proof is in the pudding. Jesus challenges the congregation. Obey God. Learn his will, follow his will, and when you do that, it will become increasingly obvious to you that I am sent from him. It will become increasingly obvious to you that there is no unrighteousness in me. In other words, as, as the text ends, there is no falsehood in me. What is Jesus refuting? I'm not a liar. I'm not lying. And if you were to examine my life according to the will of God... If you were to hold me up to the scrutiny of God's word, you would see that there is no unrighteousness in me. There is no falsehood in me. Obey God, and it will become increasingly obvious to you that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is. They just need to know God's will in order to see how Jesus is perfect. And that's why Jesus is not just appealing broadly to his righteousness, though he is, but he's really specifically appealing to his humility. And that's what he does. You see, if a person were to examine Jesus' life objectively, you know what they would find? This guy's clearly not in this for fame and money. And here's why that's important. Because that would be the motivation of a liar. Right? In other words, why would somebody be so audacious to go around claiming to be the Lord of the universe equal to God? That's a big claim. What would cause a liar to even lie about that? The only cause, the only motivation for a liar is if he felt there was some end thing and some victory. Like, this will make me super famous. I'll have a huge following. Or maybe if enough people think I'm God, then they'll pour money and I'll get really rich and famous. But Jesus is saying, if you examine my life, you'll see I'm not seeking the glory of men. I'm not looking for riches. I'm not looking for fame. I'm not looking for wealth. I'm just looking to glorify God. Again, Jesus' life is inconsistent. His motivations are inconsistent with that of a liar. And a lunatic at that as well. In fact, one of the earliest Christians, by the way, to espouse this sort of Lord, liar, lunatic trilemma was a Baptist preacher and an abolitionist named John Leland. Uh, John Leland, by the way, was very influential in America's founding. Um, very close with many of the founding fathers, very theologically influencing for many of them. He uh, preached just a couple years before the Declaration of Independence was written and affirmed. And, and I want to read, now there's some kind of old language in here, some big words in here, so you may not catch all of this as we go through, but I think you'll get the gist of it. I love the way he phrases exactly what I'm saying here. He says this about Jesus. There is no room, therefore, for charging what he did on the reveries of his own imagination. And there is as little pretense for supposing that he had a design to impose upon others or to put a solemn cheat upon mankind. In a word, there was nothing either in his own temper or conduct 
or in the scheme of religion he introduced that had the least marks of sensuality, avarice, or ambition, or of any base selfish views, or of the maxims and subtleties of worldly policy, so that it may be justly affirmed that there never was a character in the world more remote from that of an imposter than his. In short, he's saying, when you examine Jesus' life, conduct, and doctrine, it becomes very, very clear. This is not an imposter. This is not a liar. This is not a cheater. This man is authentic and honest and sincere. And this becomes, by the way, increasingly evident once we get to the crucifixion. Right? Why would Jesus continue to peddle a lie if all it brought him was not fame and wealth, but the exact opposite? Poverty, scorn, torture, and death. That's what Jesus' life got him. That's what his teaching got him. Why would a liar peddle a lie if that was the outcome? And Jesus is trying to say, if you objectively look at my life, you will see it is not consistent with a liar or a lunatic. It is consistent only with someone who is obeying God and trying to bring glory to God. That's why Jesus appeals to his ethics. He appeals to his wisdom and to his ethics. But there's also another very important argument he makes, although this one, I will admit, to give the people some break, needed to take some time before it was finally uh, fulfilled. But that is that Jesus, Jesus appeals to his own prophecies. Jesus appeals to his prophecies. He has what only God has, which is a knowledge of the future. Look at verses 33 through 36. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So Jesus is appealing here to his future ascension in this text. The place where Jesus will go that they cannot go is heaven. To be with his Father, where he is seated at the right hand of God. And this confuses the Jews because they don't know what he's talking about. So they, they think their best guess is that he's talking about leaving Israel and going in among the dispersion, where all the Jews, some of the Jews, remember, all the Jews are in Jerusalem for the feast right now, but many Jews live outside of Jerusalem. They live in the Gentile lands. And so their understanding is we're trying to arrest Jesus, and so he's going to run away from us, and he's going to go live among the Greeks because he knows we would never follow him there. Now, there's an irony in that because Jesus, in a sense, right, at his great commission, he does, in fact, commission his apostles to go out into those lands and, and pronounce his lordship there. But that's obviously not what Jesus is talking about. His father doesn't live among the dispersion. His father lives in heaven. He's talking about going to be in heaven. Jesus is referencing what we read in the Gospels, which is after his resurrection, he is literally, physically, historically ascended to the right hand of God. He prophesies his great ascension. We confess this as well in the Nicene Creed today when we said he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. It is evident then that Jesus possesses a divine knowledge of the future. In fact, this is just one of many of Jesus' successful predictions during his earthly ministry. Jesus predicted not only this, he predicted not just that he would die, but exactly how he would die. He predicted exactly who among his disciples would betray him. 
He predicted how many times Peter would deny him before the crowing of a rooster. He predicted his own resurrection. He successfully predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Next week, we're going to see him successfully predict the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I could list more and more and more. So in other words, the Lordship of Christ is proved by Jesus, not only because he is himself the fulfillment of many prophecies, but that he himself has made many true prophecies. Jesus is the fulfillment of all Bible prophecies and is himself a prophetic person who knows the future. So to summarize Jesus' sermon, he established that he is Lord, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, by appealing to these three proofs. His wisdom, his ethics, and his prophecies. And they seem pretty convincing to me. But how do the Jews in the temple respond to these proofs? Are they convinced? Some of them kind of are. Right? Read verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So, some people are hearing the message and then they're remembering the miracles and they're putting these things together. Like, why would God give all these miracles to a liar? Or to a lunatic, right? I, I think this guy's telling the truth. He, look at all of his miracles. His miracles vindicate his sermon. So some people come to faith. Now, keep in mind, the Gospel of John has opened us up to a kind of non-saving faith in Jesus. Jesus' brothers have it. John chapter 2, those people had it. So what kind of faith these people have? I don't know. Like, are they genuine believers? Or are they just sort of external disciples? We're not sure. But obviously, the truth is getting through to some of these people, at least to some degree. Right? Some people are starting to see the truth, which is encouraging. But the problem is that many, most of Jesus' arguments fall on deaf ears. They are unconvincing to apparently a lot of the people in the temple. Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So apparently there arose this Jewish tradition over time that they thought that whenever the Messiah would come, his origins would be unknown. And that's a problem for Jesus because we both know where he was born and where he grew up. So Jesus is excluded. He, he can't be the Messiah in their mind. Now, this uh, tradition is not true, but I imagine I think we're going to cover that more next week. Um, so for now, we just need to see from the text that a good portion of these people think he's disqualified, biblically speaking. So liar or lunatic, I don't know, you pick, but he's, he's not the Christ. He's not the Lord. And unfortunately, among this crowd is the Jewish leadership itself. There was maybe some suspicion. Are they, are they believing? Because they want to arrest this guy and they're not. So maybe they believe, but that's not true. Because they do eventually try to seize him and try to arrest him. And so the authorities, most of the people, have heard Jesus' claim. They've heard his argument. But they're going to go ahead and go with either the, Lord, the liar or the lunatic route. And so I want to ask us this, why are his arguments so unconvincing? And if I could give you the answer just in short, I would say these are not sincere seekers. Or at least let me not speak on my own behalf. Jesus doesn't believe that the people in the temple are sincere seekers. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus subtly implies something here that's actually quite harsh. In other words, if you follow God's will, you are going to discover that Jesus is the Lord. 
So if you have not discovered that Jesus is the Lord, what's the implication? You don't follow God's will. You don't know it. You don't follow it. You don't care about it. You're not actually that sincere. You're not even that much of a devout religious person anyway. Keep in mind, right, who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the Jewish people. These are the people who pride themselves on being what? The covenant people. We're the only people group in the world that God has covenanted with. The only people group in the world who God has given the law and the scriptures. The only people in the world that God has sent prophets to. It's the Gentiles who don't know God. It's the Gentiles who don't know God's will. We're the covenant people of God with the law of God. We know his will. We know God. And here Jesus is saying, no you don't. He tells them they don't know God's will. They don't care to know God's will. He even goes so far to tell them they don't know God at all. They don't know God at all. Look at verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed, your Bible might even say cry out. He cried out as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true in him you do not know. The God that covenanted with Israel, they don't know him. They don't know God. They don't know God's will. And they don't care to know God's will. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what's in the way right now. My arguments are not in the way. My proof and my evidence is not in the way. What's in the way is you. That's Jesus' perspective. And by the way, this is not the first time Jesus has made this claim about the Jews. He said this earlier in John chapter 5. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He's already made this claim about them. As long as you are interested in yourselves and your way of life and seeking your own fame and your own glory, you are unable to ascertain the truths that I'm telling you. You're not sincere seekers. You have a predisposition against me because I throw off your way of life. Jesus says that they are not sincere in their inquiries. Now, Jesus knows the hearts of men, so he just knows this because of his divine nature. But to be gracious to them, he doesn't just say it and hope that they take his word for it. He goes on to prove it. He says, let me show you Let's turn the tables here. Let's put you on trial for a moment. And let's examine you guys. And he goes on to show them two things. That they they neither care about God's law, nor do they even understand it. They don't care about it, and they don't understand it. He's going to prove those two things. Look at verses 19 through 20. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus reminds many of them in the crowd, there are many in this crowd who want to kill him. You know what the problem is? Moses' law prohibits that. The law of Moses is very clear about the burden of proof that must be met before you put someone to death. And they're not interested in that burden of proof. They're just discarded the law. Jesus, you've got the law, but you don't care about it. It's pretty easy for you guys just to discard the law of Moses whenever it suits you. Maybe that's why you're having a problem believing the truth of my claims. You don't care about the law of God. You're insincere. Now, obviously, there are some in the crowd who are not privy to this plan. Most likely, these are the Jews from the dispersion. 
those outside of Jerusalem. And so here we have our first claim that someone's calling Jesus a lunatic, right? They say you have a demon, and that was just the Jewish way of saying you're crazy. Because the Jewish mindset in the first century was if someone had a mental health problem, it was always caused by demon possession. So, the idea, so when you said in the first century you have a demon, you were just, that's just an expression for saying you're crazy. And so you've got these, these Jews from the Gentile, and they're not privy to everything that's been going on. And so they think Jesus has gone mad. He's making up, you know, oh, are these people in the room with you right now, Jesus? You know, he's making up these stories about people wanting to kill him. But the Jews from Jerusalem know Jesus is right. That's why we saw two weeks ago they were, un- they were afraid to talk about Jesus in public because of how much the authorities hated him. Everybody knows Jesus is right. They're trying to kill this guy without cause. They don't care about the law of Moses. You have it, but you don't follow it. That's what Jesus says. They don't care about God's law. But not only do they not care about it, even if they did care about it, they don't understand it. They don't know how to interpret their Bibles. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So here's what Jesus does. He shifts to something a little bit new. He shifts to the controversy that everybody's familiar with. The the thing he's been doing that's been making everyone so mad is he's been working on the Sabbath. Or I should say in quotes, working on the Sabbath. He's been healing people on the Sabbath. And the Jews think he's breaking the Sabbath and he's encouraging others to break the Sabbath. That's what started all of this controversy. So Jesus goes back to that controversy and he says, let's think about this for a moment. I do this one work, I heal this guy on the Sabbath and you're all freaking out about it. He says, but let me remind you, do you ever do any work on the Sabbath? Hmm. And so he reminds them of an Old Testament law. And this is why, by the way, he appeals to Moses and not Abraham. That's what the text says. Well, Moses didn't technically give you circumcision, right? Circumcision existed before the law of Moses. He was given to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the reason he wants to talk about Moses is because Moses was not only sort of re-given circumcision, but in his context, it came with all of these really, really regulatory Sabbath laws. So Jesus pulls out two laws which appear on the surface to be contradictory. And one law is you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, right? You can be killed for that. It's important. Don't do work on the Sabbath. But there was another law in the Old Testament that whenever a son is born, you must circumcise him on the eighth day after his birth. Now, we don't control when our children are born. Sometimes a child is born, and guess what day falls on the eighth day afterward? The Sabbath. So what are you going to do? Are you going to break the Sabbath and work on the Sabbath in order to fulfill the eighth day law? Or are you going to break the eighth day law in order to not work on the Sabbath? What are you going to do? And Jesus knows what the custom of the Jews was. The custom of the Jews was, we think the circumcision is important, so we're going to circumcise even on the Sabbath. So it's always been a Jewish custom. It doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath. If it's the eighth day, circumcise the baby. And Jesus says, how hypocritical of you. You guys are allowed to obey God on the Sabbath, but then when I obey God on the Sabbath, you turn around and act like I'm a Sabbath breaker. You don't even understand the law. The point Jesus is trying to make is obviously obedience to God, works of obedience, works of mercy. These have never been works on the Sabbath. They've always been permitted. And he proves it to him because you've always been permitted to circumcise on the Sabbath. And, and, and the, the, the priests in the temple have always been permitted to offer sacrifices on the Sabbath. There is some work that's permitted on the Sabbath. And if you just read your Bible for two minutes, you would have understood that. That's what he means, by the way, in verse 24. That, that's what, look at verse 24. 
Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What is he saying? You guys have such a surface, shallow view of God's law that you just see me do something on Saturday and say, oh, he's a Sabbath breaker. You just judge by appearances rather than doing your homework, reading your Bible, studying it, and making a proper judgment about this. He's telling these people, you're not sincere seekers. You don't know God, you don't know his law, and you don't even care for his law. So why am I surprised that you're unconvinced by my arguments? And so I think, in other words, what Jesus is teaching us, in summary, most often, the thing that stands in the way from a person coming to faith in Christ is themselves. It's not the evidence. It's not the arguments. It's their own heart. That's why most people don't come to Christ. And so this is how I think we can put this passage together. Because, because this long passage we read, it really has two elements. Two primary elements. It has Jesus giving a beautiful sermon, proof and claim of his lordship. And then it has a bunch of ignorant, insincere hearers who are not persuaded by it. And so, how could we maybe take away a main idea from this sermon? Here's what I have. God will supply persuasive evidence of his son to those who sincerely seek him. Sincere seekers, God will never turn away. If you know God's will, if you follow God's will, you will see the things that I am saying are true. Sincere seekers will not be put to shame. I'm reminded of the promise that God made to Israel Right before telling them of a coming judgment and a coming captivity, he tells them, but I'm going to be with you. I've not forsaken you for the plans I have for your good. And he says, I will pull you out of this captivity. And what's going to happen when you are finished with your time of discipline? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. They weren't seeking God sincerely, and so they had not found him. So he put them through discipline so that they could turn to him sincerely and objectively. When you seek with your heart, you will surely find me. You see, the problem with Jesus' arguments were not the arguments themselves. It was not the evidence. It wasn't the way he preached. It was the insincerity of those pretending to seek him. But God will not withhold his son from those who sincerely search for him. And so, if you are opposed to God and his word, let me submit this to you. You will always find Christ to be either a liar or a lunatic. But if you sincerely desire a relationship with God, if you believe God and you trust in his word and you pursue him, you will find his son. You will find Jesus to be both his son and your savior. God will show Jesus to you persuasively and powerfully. He will not turn down someone sincerely seeking the truth. As we learned in John chapter 6, because it is he who ultimately draws you and brings you to that place of sincere seeking. He will never turn away the work that he has done in you. And so to those who come humble and broken in sincerity, God will, by His Spirit, make it obvious to you that Jesus Christ was no liar. And He certainly was not insane. But that He was and He is the Lord. 